Hello and welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. Today, we are so excited and honored to be gathered with Amy Ahyana Park and Sarah Kim Park, two amazing Korean transracial adoptee mothers based in the Seattle area. They have both done incredible work inside and outside the adoptee community. Their contributions and accolades are too long to name at all here. So please be sure to check out our Instagram page at Labor of Love Podcast to read their full bios and get to know more about their groundbreaking and uplifting work. Welcome, Amy and Sarah. Thank you, guys. <laughs> so happy to be here. Thanks, Robin and Nari. We are so excited to be beaming in and um, sharing in the space together as we begin our conversations together. We are curious where you are now as a parent. What are the two parenting themes that you are experiencing and are meditating on? So Amy, I'm going to pass it over to you. Do you mind starting and sharing a little bit about the two themes that are coming up for you these days? That's such a great question. My eldest son, Jayu, is 12 years old and Asa is nine years old. I guess I've had a little over a decade to go through that evolution of the newborn phase that is a little bit hazy and liberating and just a bit of a wild circus. And coming into this next phase, my Jayu is going into middle school, I have gone deeper into myself a bit of what that means in this journey as the kids get older and have a really strong sense of who they are. And I think that first decade was about building community so that they feel really rooted as Korean Americans, you know, as Asian Americans, and finding their individual selves. So I think about it in this idea of being a daughter of the diaspora. And I find myself introducing myself, Amy Park, she, her, I'm a community mother and a daughter of the diaspora. And I think I started really looking at that idea of what the diaspora means for different communities. You know, there's this Korean saying, it's around celebration. And they say, manse, manse. It translates to 10,000 generations. And as we look towards who we are as a family and also where we sit, in this time and place with racial reckoning and who our children are and will become, we know that it doesn't start with us, that we have huge cultural legacy from our ancestors that goes back this idea of like 6,000 generations and will continue to carry with our sons being the first that are not adopted. Like they have really strong roots of who their family are. It's multidimensional, multiracial. And um, so that, feels really great, you know, being a mother, knowing that our, my sons and that our children will have, I think, stronger understanding of their beginning. And so with that, another theme, love as liberation, it, that really resonates because we have such a loving community here with our CAD community. You know, I met Sarah a long time ago. I also was part of the first board for AAAW. And just, I think, in our own evolution of who community is in relationship with solidarity, anti-racist organizing, and, you know, with other people of color, finding themselves in time and place in the city, and knowing that liberation has to be the foundation for, you know, our communities to build together as BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, 
people of color and understanding, you know, there's this idea around privilege for Asian Americans, but we cats have this really unique story of struggle, loss, trauma, and healing. And that's what gives us power. Ooh, manse, manse. Manse. I love <laughs> those beautiful themes and, and really going to hold love is liberation as well um, so deeply uh, in our conversation together. And I'm wondering for you, Sarah, as well, what are some themes that are coming up for you that you've been really feeling and experiencing or thinking about? Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting reflecting on this. There's a lot, you know, especially I feel like surviving the pandemic in the past year and a half has really magnified a lot of these issues. I feel like number one for me, something I deal with every day, even if I'm not actively thinking about it, is parenting my two boys differently than how I was raised. And so, and different in many aspects. So, living in the Pacific Northwest, whereas, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in the Kansas City area. But the fact that my children are not adopted, we're like all Korean in our family. Also, my parenting style, I'm coming at it from, you know, a little different approach than how I was raised, which was kind of more, I would say, authoritarian. <laughs> Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, I think a lot of the discourse and feelings about adoption and adoptive parenting were really different where, you know, I think nowadays adoptive parents are really encouraged to dive deep into the racial and ethnic background of their children. But of course, you know, from our generation, our parents were really encouraged, you know, assimilation was key. You know, there really wasn't the same sense of awareness around them. I think for anybody, not just adoptees, if you're trying to parent differently than the way you were raised, it's just constant extra work. You're always having to stop yourself and maybe something that would come naturally to you, especially in a moment of stress, you know, you have to stop yourself and think like, no, okay, what is the parent that I want to be versus like, what is my immediate reaction? That's exhausting <laughs> to constantly have to do that. You know, there's a lot of reward, I think, if you can feel like you maybe not mastering it, but if you can feel any level of success, you know, that feels rewarding, but it is also just really tiring. And then the second thing that I feel like I'm always dealing with as a mom is trying to balance seeing the big picture. So, you know, someday they won't be this tiny, someday they won't. So I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and I'm always telling myself, you know, someday they, they won't need me this much. And even though can be tiring now, the amount that they do need me, I try to remind myself I'm going to miss this someday. So it's like trying to balance seeing the big picture and yet still being present in the moment with my kids, enjoying them at this age, enjoying the fun that they love to have but also keeping the big picture in mind so that it's really, especially in the pandemic, it can be so easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day -day of parenting. What's for lunch? What's for dinner? All these little tiny things that you have to do for your kids. Thank you both. And 
that second part of balancing the big picture and being present in the moment. I think it's so true, not only to parenting and, and also how we're going to hold the conversation today of really seeing these larger themes in your experiences and our community. And then also just so present in, in our conversations of the things that you're experiencing right now. So thank you both for sharing those. Yeah. I really appreciate how both of you are talking kind of about zooming in and zooming out. So with Sarah, you were talking about being in the present moment now, but also looking at a relationship over a lifetime. And Amy, I feel like I was listening to you talking about the present moment now, being in community now and doing this really important liberation work now, but also zooming out to Monse, 10,000 generations. What And where are we in that timeline? We are always standing on the foundation of our ancestors. And then we will also join that as the foundation for our future great, 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 great grandchildren. So there's so much zooming in and zooming out, I feel like from both of you and just parenting as this ever evolving evolutionary process and that we get to be a part of what that looks like for ourselves, healing ourselves, like you were saying, Sarah, with the mindfulness in the moment and changing the narrative and being the parent that you want to be, not necessarily the product of the parents you had. And then also what that means to, as a revolutionaries, you know, I think what you're talking about, Sarah, is a very revolutionary thing. You're envisioning and enacting something new, something different and something more liberating and on a community scale, Amy, with your work as well. So just bringing in all of our revolutionary ancestors into this conversation, and then also that joy and stepping into being one ourselves. Mm. I think a big thing in our community is coming back to our roots. I'm of the belief that we never really lost those roots, but it's kind of maybe re-getting in touch with them or bringing them up through our bodies into more of a place where we're practicing uh, things that our ancestors have practiced. And just wondering for each of you, Sarah, maybe I'll start with you about how do you think about integrating cultural practices from motherland, fatherland, birth country, um, into your parenting, into yourself? And how is that trickling through this, you know, wisdom uh, through you into daily or annual practices in your parenting? It's really hard. Parenting in general is so hard. I mean, I, your podcast title, Labor of Love, is very appropriate because <laughs> it's not just, you know, the physical labor that some of us endure, but just the daily labor. A lot of us as adoptees, we feel like we go through sort of a process, this cultural reclaiming process a lot of times before we become parents. Although I think I know for some adoptee parents, they like go through it maybe simultaneously with their kids. For me, I was able to do a lot of that reclamation work before I had my oldest, but probably felt like, oh yeah, I've been to Korea. I lived in Korea. I did all this adoptee work. But then as soon as I had my son, it was like going way, way back in time almost because it's very triggering. (laughs) So, you know, our trauma is all centered around separation from our parents. And so when you like experience that, 
yourself as a parent, I wasn't ready. Parenting in general is one of those things like you can kind of vaguely understand when you're not a parent, but it's not until you become one that you really deep in your bones get it. I mean, really, the first couple of years, I felt I was in a bit of a fog. And I wasn't even really thinking about these higher level topics with parenting. I was just trying to survive. (laughs) But with a little bit of distance, I mean, I feel like there's kind of two ways of thinking about um, how do I integrate these cultural practices? Because on one hand, for me, there's the Korean aspect since I'm adopted from Korea. And also my husband is adopted from Korea too. So there's the Korean aspect. And then there's also the adoption aspect, which is different. So the narrative of adoption and how does that get trans or translated to my kids, you know, with cultural stuff, I feel like that's a little simpler simply because I had had some experience with that before I had kids. You know, I have studied Korean language a little bit. I'm definitely not fluent. There is a bit of a sense of like, am I Korean enough? I felt that way through my whole life. When my oldest turned one, Nari was there. I went all out for his one-year birthday party. So the dolchanchi in Korean. And, you know, I had attended these before. And so I had kind of an idea. You know, it's a big celebration. But I felt like I really needed to have like the most awesome, the most Korean um, dole party ever. So I had hired this Korean dole party planner and we invited like all these people and it was wonderful. And we have that memory, but I know underneath that, that there was that insecurity of like, I need to be really Korean for (laughs) not just my son, but like our community too. In regards to like adoption, I remember like being really worried, like, how am I going to talk about being adopted with them? I didn't want to because it's exhausting. (laughs) And then I came to this realization because kids have, you know, their levels of understanding are constantly evolving. And I realized, oh, I can't just tell them one time about how I'm adopted from Korea. I'm going to have to tell them over and over and over, just like I have to tell them everything else over and over and over and over, because maybe they're not listening. Or sometimes it had come out in a moment of anger about adoption. So I tried to be more mindful about it and try to drop it into everyday conversation. And because my kids are seven and four, they sort of get it. My four-year-old, definitely, it's still very vague for him. But yeah, I think So there's the ethnic cultural piece and then, well, ethnic and racial, but then also adoptee culture, which is really unknown to a lot of people who don't have direct experience with it. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, so much of what you're saying really resonates with me as a parent as well. And I just want to acknowledge what you said about when you do choose to bring in the conversation, it can be triggering daily and consistently, you know, like I'm talking about my adoption again with my child, you know, what you were saying about that being kind of exhausting. That's so real. So thank you for that. And Amy, I'd love to hear from you as well. 
Yeah, Sarah, I could relate to so much of what you said. You know, as women, we hear a lot about imposter syndrome in the workplace. And I think for us as Asian Americans, too, we've had to really forge what that means for us becoming women and now mothers. And I think that is a really similar process that takes hold when we become parents of like, how do we create a cultural foundation for what our family values are? what we eat, what we celebrate outside the house, and to really instill in our children that they're Asian Americans, they're Korean Americans, they're children of the diaspora and children of Korean adoptees. You know, one book that I started looking at again, Jane Jong Trenka, you know, she was one of the founding old adoptees that started telling her story and shaping this narrative 25 years ago. And that was through a lot of pain and loss. And we grew up in a time where identity and racism seemed to be a lot of the themes we dealt with. And I'm so thankful and grateful for those who have opened this journey to really evolve the narrative around loss and trauma and to really recognize that distinct um, tear that we've had uprooted from the land, our mother's blood lineage. and our language. I've been using this idea around language of blood. Nari, you heard a story that I shared in front of other women of color. And I know that for a lot of folks, whether you're adopted or not, even Korean American women, what do they choose to continue to share with their children? They might have to relearn that too, or do it in a way that feels really comfortable for them. And I think about food being just a deep grounding practice that connects us to our soul. You know, I always call it soul food. It's the language and the whispers that we get to connect with our ancestors. And if we look at the foundational beliefs around intergenerational trauma, that sits in our bodies. It sits in our DNA. The whisperings of our ancestors, they move through us and that moves through pain and joy and how we communicate with our maternal bloodline. And so that language of blood really carries me into how I'm, you know, Sarah talks, I love how how she framed reclamation around our culture and practices within our home and parenting. So food's been really a grounding place of love and joy and comfort and sadness. Our children, I think, feel very proud that this is how they identify, like that food brings comfort and love to them. I have a Another unique experience of how my children understand their identity and cultural foundation, because my husband is a fourth generation Korean and fifth generation Japanese person from Hawaii. And so he has over 125 years connected to the land where Korean Americans and Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders are really rooted And that culture looks so different than here on the mainland. And his grandmother grew up on the pineapple plantation, second generation, and had 10 siblings. And so those traditions and practices were really modified and changed. But to this day, we still make the North Korean style mandu for Salar for the new year. And it's just to know that that is the same way and the same flavor that our ancestors were able to make probably 5,000 years ago. And 
it, that is such an honor that, you know, Daniel spends three days preparing. And now the boys sit and make that. And we were able to share that with Wing Luke because we know that it is in our responsibility for us to continue these practices because there is so much story and the struggle and the Han and the Jung that's in every Mandu that we have. And our kids, they, they find joy in that. I know that that will be a big part of their identity when they're older and hopefully they'll continue that practice. The other piece about reclamation Reclamation, you know, I talked about language. There's this idea that you have to be fluent to really practice something. And that's not like how parenting is. That's not how families are. You create your own language. And so having also had a similar journey as Sarah and going back and doing a lot of that personal work over 40 years now with figuring out who I am as a Korean American since 1995, traveling back to Korea about five times now, and every 10 years reconnecting with my foster family, and then being able to bring my children back three years ago to the Buddhist monastery temple that I was raised in for a short time, that helps really cement and bring alive what this unique, I mean, only 200,000 of us have a story that's anything similar, that our children really need to understand because no one can, they won't see that represented in many other mainstream forms of storytelling. And so that was so powerful. And one of the most significant times in our life together as a family, where they could bow down at the temple, you know, pray to the mountain God, and we are all able to give gratitude, thanks to the ancestors for the safe journey back home. And with that, you know, just having been able to know the importance of being able to speak Korean, even if it was at a level of like a three-year-old, to my two boys where that was their first language. Other caregivers couldn't understand them for a couple of years. And it's broken. They might know 50 sayings, but that is our family language. And I'm just grateful that that will always root them to me and back to the motherland. Y'all are food for our souls right now and just so appreciative of the whisperings of your wisdom that you both are sharing and thinking more around this, wondering about names. You know, names are such a fascinating discussion, not only for us as adoptees and really thinking about our own process of maybe reclaiming, renaming, choosing, you know, our own names. But thinking about this within the context of your children, wondering if you can tell us more about the process of naming your children and the impact that that's had on your own identity. I'm so curious, Amy, when I first learned about the names of your children, I, I, I was so excited about this question to hear more about your process, if maybe you want to start. Yeah, I love that question because actually for folks, Families of Color Seattle organization that we all were part of. That is one of the questions of what's the significance of your name, because our communities of color, BIPOC communities, have these ancestral lines and deep homage to our families. And for us, that line is totally broken and dissolved and painful. And I think reclamation of name um, was really important to me. I grew up with my Korean name as my middle name. No one knew how to say it. It's Amy Hyena. Moline is how I grew up. I made a name. And that's part of my story now. I've had at least four names in my life. 
unknown for the first many years. I went to a foster family. They named me Yu Hyena. And then I came to America and became Amy Hyena Moline. And then my married name is Amy Hyena Pak. And so, you know, it sat with me for a long time of what are we going to name our children? Daniel and Amy have very Christian names. And I don't think we feel much connection to those. And that always surprised me. His parents were radical, like Marxist organizers in Hawaii, but they kind of went with, you know, something mainstream. And I wanted to make sure that was really significant for our two boys. And so I just started asking Korean elders in our life and unnees, how do you say these different words? You know, I would look in a paperback, like dictionary of Korean words, you know, and I did that for our dog. And I just started thinking, like, how do I incorporate something really meaningful? And my friend, Filipino artist, he asked me back in 1998, he did these beautiful resin pieces. And it was a lot about the colonization of Filipinos, you know, the 200 year Spanish colonization. And he asked me, what's the word for freedom? And so I looked it up. It's this really simple, beautiful looking word that says chayu. And so that always sat with me. And then when I was working at UW with students, someone had told me about a Tibetan man named chayu. At that time, I was pregnant. And it reminded me, oh my gosh, chayu means freedom in Korean. And it just stayed with me. And we kind of played around with or tossed it around to family in Hawaii. And his parents loved it, you know, just being Marxists and agitators. You know, that really is a lot of our belief system too here. And when Jai was born, he actually had a traumatic birth. He wasn't breathing. You know, all the ICU people rushed in and his he had something in his throat, umbilical cord around his neck. And I always had this fear that I couldn't have children, you know, just as an adoptee. I think some fortune teller told me I wouldn't have children by past lives. And that always sat with me in this form of tragic story. And I think a lot of the adoptee stories we in books back then were really tragic too. And he was away from me for about four hours um, as they were trying to keep him warm and supported. And they brought him back to me, put him in my arms. And Daniel was playing ukulele and just trying to keep a lot of vibrant energy in the room. And and I got him and we had not decided a name. And I held him and I said, hi, Jayu, in terms of like the power of like his birth. And it just felt absolutely like that had always been his name through many lives. And then Asa, he, uh, his name is actually double meaning, our nine-year-old. It's Japanese and it means morning because his birth was totally opposite. Very sweet, mild morning, six hours. But double meaning, it also means awesome, like asa in Korean. <laughs> so it's, it's very much who he is. <laughs> oh, and I, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I, I, I have goosebumps and tears as you are explaining, you know, or just really sharing so much of the power of your children's names and the process of that. I'm hearing just too, as such a communal you know, family process when you were able to do that. And then in the moment, just feeling that so deeply as you, you got to hold Chaoyun for the first time. So thank you. That's so powerful. How about for you, Sarah? What has it been like 
for you? It's really interesting hearing your stories, Amy. I mean, I've heard it before sometimes, but hearing it again, I, I see I can relate so much because, you know, my oldest has a super traumatic birth too. In the middle of the night at 1 a.m., he was only four pounds. It was like a surprise. Nobody knew he was going to be so underweight. He was taken away almost immediately as well. And he had to be in an incubator for the first week of his life. I kind of didn't sleep for a week. And that's not a good, because I was in the hospital room with him. So that's not a good way to start off parenting by having no sleep. <laughs> and then, yeah, my second was during the daytime. I had an epidural. I was able to talk through all my uh, contractions. It was very peaceful. <laughs> um, and I really feel like it's reflected in their personalities, where my second is a little more easygoing than my oldest. My first Korean name was also Hyana. I came with the name Kim Hyana, and my parents pronounced it Hyuna my whole life. And that's what I thought it was. Until I met a Korean person who said, no, 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 because she'd asked me, what's your Korean name? And I said it, and she was very confused, like, what is it? So once I wrote it down, then she told me the correct pronunciation. So I actually reunited with my Korean family in 2005. My mother is deceased, and I'm not in touch with my Korean father, but I have two sisters. I have um, an older sister and a younger sister. And then our mother was one of seven. So I have an uncle and six emos in Korea. My way, Hamoni, my maternal grandmother is still alive. She's almost a hundred years old now. You know, my, uh, sister's names are Misan and uh, Mie. I have been speaking with my uncle and I felt like I was asking, like, do you know if our mother named me? Or was this a name given to me? And of course, you know, nobody knows. I was also trying to figure out, is my birthday really my birthday? And it was all, well, I remember it was really cold. <laughs> and so they're not sure if it was October or not. Just, uh, you know, all the uncertainties of being adopted. But they, my uncle suggested a different name for me, Miran, so that it would... Um, match more seamlessly with my sisters. So that's the Korean name I use now is Kim Miran. But for the first 25 years of my life, I was Kim Hyuna. And my adoptive parents kept Kim as my middle name, Sarah Kim Park. But, you know, 25% of the nation is Kim. <laughs> and uh, also, there's so many adoptees named Kim, either as their first name or middle name. Definitely not unique. So my husband's name is also Daniel, although he goes by Dan. You know, we were choosing more traditional first names. You know, of course, we have pride in our Korean heritage. For us personally, I didn't want um, them to have to constantly be spelling their names for people, explaining it over and over and over. You know, I think that, of course, it's beautiful and powerful having names that aren't going to be typical American mainstream. I certainly have no problem and I honor people that choose non-traditional names. For us, I think we're, because Dan and I still have our adoptive names, we connected 
more to something that was within our own adoptee culture of naming, at least for the first name. But I was, I really wanted to have Korean middle names for Micah, my oldest. We gave him the Korean name of Jong-yoon. My husband, Dan, his Korean name is Park Jong-yoon. So we gave him the same name as Dan. And, you know, I realized that's not a naming tradition in Korea at all. You know, there's no juniors in Korea. But it felt important to us to have that be part of his identity, even if it's not something that he uses every day. Because you know, my husband, actually, uh, when we got married, he changed his last name to Park from his adoptive name. And his adoptive family was really supportive. Um, they, they, under- they didn't voice it to us as taking it as a rejection. We wanted to identify as like a Korean-American family. So we have a Korean last name. Although in Korean, it's Park, but it's been Americanized as Park. <laughs> And then with Sam, I actually asked my oldest sister in Korea to help me come up with a name. And I wanted to ask her because I think a lot of times it's, it's more whoever the, you know, the oldest, the oldest member of the family would decide. Maybe my uncle or my grandmother, but I feel the closest to my sisters. And I thought it would be more meaningful and more powerful for us for her to choose it. So Sam's middle name is uh, Sayun, and so it's sort of um, a gender-neutral name. So it's used by girls and boys in Korea. That's how we chose their Korean names. I mean, Micah was originally supposed to be Max, and then the day that I went into labor, I just had this feeling like I don't like that name, and I was um, looking up other names, unbeknownst that I was in labor. I ended up having a natural birth with him simply because I didn't know any better. Let me tell you, the second time I almost had a natural, just thought I would do it again. But as soon as the first contraction hit, I said, no, give me the epidural right away. Well, thank you both for sharing so much about the power of names, the thoughtfulness, the meaning behind your choices, and also the impact that's had on your own identity and also for so intimately sharing aspects of your children's birth stories. It's so powerful to hear those as well. So thank you. Yeah, it's so so wonderful to hear connected threads about naming yourself, reclaiming your own identity, and then also helping create the foundation of your children's identities and how there's this symbiotic relationship with how those evolve and develop over time. It's really, it's just so beautiful and thinking on, you know, what you're passing on and what you're connecting to. I'm wondering if we can move the spotlight over to your partners and uh, something that's unique about both of you is that you're both in partnership with people who are Korean and and Daniel is Korean and Japanese and Dan is a Korean adoptee and just wondering kind of about how co-parenting with your perspective or respective partners, like how that impacts uh, your decisions on what you bring in and what you highlight and what you honor in your family with regards to Korean culture. Um, You both have spoke a little bit about this, but yeah, just like what that's been like to do that in partnership. So many people in our community are partnered outside of 
our race and ethnicity. And so I do think it's unique that both of you guys have partners with Korean roots. I just am so grateful for Daniel's family. Not only is he a feminist, right? Like in Hawaii, they just, they adore their mothers. They cook. I think the cultural foundation Hawaii is family, right? And the way they share joy and communicate love through each other um, is their food and having really large network of family. And so much of that pride and humor is based on the culture and the way people, other communities, especially are a lot of multiracial. And so they joke about that identity. And in Hawaii, they, people love Koreans, like they love the food, they have huge adoration, like fan base of Korean dramas, and that's been for decades. And then now, of course, with Hallyu and BTS and all that, you know, and Korean food there has always been just a main staple part of the plate lunch. And so that really is a big part of who Daniel is to our boys, because work is difficult. He's become our main cook and the perpetuator and the teacher of a lot of the foundations of how culture evolves and with time and place. And it's like a mixed plate island Korean plate lunch. And that to me is really relatable as a Korean adoptee. You know, even though we are first generation immigrants, we don't carry that traditional knowledge around everything, what that means. And so it's a very comfortable place for our family to sit. The mixed plate lunch is really an amalgamation of the Korean adoptee experience too, I feel like it's in our soul. It's what we love and it's evolved and that's okay. Like no one should judge us for it, right? And I think we can get to a place of moving away from shame and moving into this place of liberation and joy and understanding the power and the healing nature of our traditions. So food has really been a healing and joyful place for us. I'm just really grateful for his parents because that is like the source of their power and it's the source of the love that they have. And I'm able to really reflect that. And so similar to the adult chanchi, you know, the first birthday, the total ceremony, they were able to do that for us, you know, with both the boys. And we were able to get a hanbok from Korea. And that was what I was able to bring, that direct connection to our homeland. And so when we went back to Korea for Daniel, that was really powerful because he just knew it as like this evolved understanding four generations later of Korean. His father's a professor and has actually taught in Korea the past 15 years at Ide and Yonsei at the international program. So he doesn't really speak Korean either, but his father, my boy's grandfather, has become like a cultural historian, a documentarian for their family. And their family actually was on a KBS Chuseok international special, really looking at the diaspora of Chuseok around the world and how it's celebrated. And so at that time, Jayu was a baby and we were five generations of Koreans in Hawaii. And that is a really unique experience. And so Daniel's family has taught me so much and they're really proud that I can really um, 
integrated to their family because I love to cook. And most of my food that I put my heart and, heart and soul and tears into is Korean. And that's our soul food, especially the chiges and the sauces and samgyeopsal and kimchi, bokumbap, and just everything for us that really is our healing and language of love. And so their family is so happy that that is like a first generation value and connection for me to, I guess, practice with our children. And so the last piece I want to say about that is, you know, thinking about the paradox of being a Korean adoptee and this dysphoria that we experience kind of out of body experience growing up, you know, and everyone seeing us for an Asian American or you're Korean, what is that, right? And we were questioning all that growing up, um, especially in the Midwest or um, white towns, and not feeling proud of who we were or even understanding what that meant, to becoming a parent and making sure our children absolutely feel a holistic sense of peace and self-love, right, of understanding who they are. That is a big journey, and it's really been a source of deep meaning for me and our family. It's really become an honor to be a parent to my boys. And for them, it's really natural. And there is no expectation. It's not legit. It's not authentic. And I think this one of my students reminded me, she's like, hey, how do you make kimchi? Long time ago. I was like, oh, that's an art. And this is before like manchi and internet and all that. And I said, oh, you'll have to ask a Korean mom. And she said, you're the only Korean mom I know. I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I hear so much gratitude and so much connection with Daniel's family. But the part about what you bring as a first generation immigrant Korean mom and you are the, the keeper of memories of actually growing up partly in on Korean soil, being born there, being developing in the womb there, having that epigenetic experience, having a direct connection through family and ancestry there, I think is so powerful. And the way that you have woven that together within your family to create all of these diasporic threads and direct threads for your children just really moves me deeply. As well as a theme about food. I actually often tell Raven, kimchi is your history and it's also your destiny. And I think there's all of these pieces that food can bring, you know, in terms of connecting and family and nourishment and spirituality and what we're offering to each other, how we're, how we're feeding, literally growing each other and moving each other forward, powering each other through life together. Um, Sarah, we would absolutely love to hear from you as well. I love hearing all this talk about food, making me hungry. <laughs> we were talking about partners. So my husband, Dan, he is a Korean adoptee as well. In that sense, we have a lot of shared experiences from growing up and our family dynamics, like a shared language around that. Although, I mean, as we all know, being in community with adoptees, that's not always the case. You know, a lot of people have very different takeaways from our experiences as adoptees. So 
not necessarily a given. But Dan and I are, have um, very similar upbringing because he's also from the Midwest in Wisconsin. When it comes to adoption and race and ethnicity and culture, we are very much on the same page. It's all the other things about parenting where we might have disagreements, sleeping, sunscreen application, (laughs) a lot of other things that we don't agree on. So it's constant negotiation. (laughs) But luckily, I feel like we're pretty much on the same page when it comes to those race culture adoption issues. But reconnected with my birth family in 2005. And then his history is a little more complicated. But we as a family with Micah, when our oldest, when our oldest was almost two, we went back to Korea in 2015. And that's the last time that we were all there. But prior to that, I had been back several times and had lived there for a period of time. But my oldest doesn't really have any memories really from that trip. But it did really, it really struck both Dan and I watching him be sort of anxious and stressed being in Korea where everyone is speaking Korean and he didn't understand what people were saying. My oldest is sort of exceptional as far as like his um, awareness of his surroundings and it was causing him stress and it was reminding us, wow, we experienced that as well (laughs) to the nth degree of it wasn't, it wasn't a one week vacation. It was for the rest of our lives. (laughs) You know, he at least had his parents with him. Yeah, I think it's so beautiful, Amy, that you were able to take your boys to that Buddhist monastery where you were raised. And I was wondering, I realized it was what, three years ago, do you feel like your children really like understood the meaning behind that? Or was it powerful for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think part of it is because we were able to connect to my foster father who drove us there. And they he only spoke Korean. And so he had them. Actually, my in-laws and Daniel think my foster father may be my birth father. I think they have this fantasy. And, you know, they just don't know why he's so invested and cries. And I think just like the Korean Han, it's like this collective sorrow and rage and shame that we're part of that loss in history and so yeah my children definitely understand how profound that moment was and I think they can connect the having white grandparents on my side and having Korean Japanese Hawaii grandparents on Daniel's side but other than that they don't really understand adoption right and so I think going back to Korea that helped really paint the fuller picture that there was also another foster parent that still has love for me that loves them unconditionally and that this is in a very far away land and how kind of obscure it is being in a buddhist monastery that you know there's no children around there and so as you said we'll continue telling this story and for them to understand kind of the mysticism is part of their story and some of that broken pieces and part, you know, how you have to understand is keep talking about it. And that becomes part of our family origin story. Yeah, my youngest, he actually thinks it's normal for people to have all these different sets of families. And then I was sort of explaining like, well, yes, some families have that. 
that not all families, you know, not all families are going to have three or four sets of grandparents because it was so long ago. Well, I guess now it's been six years since we were back in Korea. You know, I communicate with my family on Kakao Talk, the messaging app, but it's not a lot. You know, a lot of that is language barrier, time difference. And I try to do video calls during holidays, like Chuseok or Solau. But we mourn that sort of loss of connection that we have. So my older sister has um, two children as well. And so they are really my children's only cousins because I was a um, only, I am an only child in my adoptive family. And then they don't have any cousins on Dan's side either. So their only cousins in life are my sister's children in Korea that Micah has only met once when he was almost two. And then we see sometimes in videos that we send each other or video calls that we do. So they know that we have this family there, but the connection sometimes isn't as tangible for them. So it is very difficult to have a sense of immediacy with that when you're separated by so much distance in the time. And also the expense of flying over there. I'm actually really hopeful that maybe someday my sister with her family can come visit us here in um, Washington. I mean, that would be amazing. My younger sister did travel here a couple times, and she was here for the wedding that Dan and I did here in the United States. We also did a wedding, (laughs) in quotes, in uh, Korea, but it was at a folk museum, (laughs) at the uh, Lotte Folk Museum. And uh, we wore, I mean, I don't think a lot, (laughs) most Korean people don't do that. You know, they go to one of those wedding halls where they have the white Western wedding dress. But it was important to Dan and I, mainly me, because I was the wedding person, but to have that uh, traditional aspect where we wore the traditional hanbok. And um, but then we also, there were random people who came in and watched our wedding. Because it was at a folk museum, and they probably didn't know it was a real wedding. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate hearing um, more from you, and just yeah, how you incorporated that traditional aspects into your partnership as well. Having those photos and those memories as a part of your family story, and kind of the origin story of your kids, right? And that they'll always have that as well. There's a lot of humor in that wedding. I mean, so there are random people watching. Dan and I are not fluent in Korean, so we had people standing next to us to tell us when to bow. They're basically, you have to do a short bow and a long bow. So there'd be someone standing next to you and say, short bow, long bow, because there's this guy speaking in very formal Korean the whole time, probably giving some sort of speech about, I don't know. And we were just bowing when we were told. And then when we got the um, photo book back, they did really extreme Photoshop on our skin tone because that's considered aesthetically pleasing there. So I always joke that Dan, he looks like a ghost <laughs> in, the, in our wet Korean wedding pictures. Like they really lightened his skin a lot. There's a, a video of the wedding too, which Micah has seen. We, I'm realizing now Sam has never seen it, so we'll have to show it to him sometime. Well, on that note, thinking about our future and the things that we will 
offer or share with our children and our future children's children and so on. I, I want to remind us of a really beautiful Rupi Kaur poem on legacy that really talks about standing on, you know, the sacrifices of the millions, you know, before us and really thinking of how we're creating this mountain to be taller so that the future, you know, generations can see further. And I just love that so much. And when we think about legacy and kind of the gifts and wisdom that we want to pass on to our community, to our future, and wondering for the both of you, what you would like to pass on to your future grandchildren. Wow, that is so profound. Thank you for sharing that. That is really beautiful. Um, It's such a visual to see, you know, this journey doesn't end with us at all. And I think a lot of adoptees struggle with that. I actually find myself being okay if my children don't have children. I think a lot about the climate change and what that'll look like. But they, both of them talk about having children. So I am, of course, would love that, especially knowing the legacy lineage kind of starts with us too in, in a physical way. And I just want them to always feel a responsibility to community, to love and healing, and this interconnectedness and very political rooted power for fighting for all oppressed people of strong connection and love for BIPOC, really honoring Black Indigenous folks and the history and the loss, and also knowing that's part of their story too. And I'm curious what this narrative will look like for adoptees in the future. And I want my kids to really value that story of this transnational diasporic story. And I want them to be really close with each other. I have a brother and I think because we're not bio, he's Korean, like we're close and it's different, right? And I think trauma affects a lot of pieces there. My family and I are really close and it's different. And we can still at the same time hold our loss and trauma and longing too. And so for Jai and Asa, they have something very unique that I didn't have and I still don't have. And I think sometimes in our full love and heart community, adoptees can still feel we're untethered and longing. And so for my two boys, I want them to always know that they have each other. And that is the deepest love that they will have and the longest. Oh, I hope that too. And I actually, I always remind them of that when they're arguing. And we tell them like, he's your brother for life. What I hope for my children and my grandchildren, what I didn't have growing up, like Amy was saying, that feeling of closeness and intimacy with your blood relatives. I think if I could identify it in two things, what I would hope they feel is that sense of community, sense of belonging, the sense of belonging to something tangible. I mean, I feel a sense of belonging to adoptee culture, um, adoptee community, That, but that culture and community is not rooted in a physical space. It's really intangible. And a lot of times feeling I'm seen for all of my layers, the number of times that that happens in like a year is very limited because, you know, it's not rooted in physical community. 
And we have to create those spaces for ourselves and it takes a lot of work and effort. (laughs) So I would really hope that that isn't the type of work that they feel they have to do. And so that they feel confident in themselves. I guess it's very related to a sense of belonging, but themselves, I really hope that my children and future grandchildren would feel a strong sense of self-awareness and confidence. I mean, that was just something I struggled with and still sometimes a struggle for me. Like, what do I truly want? You know, what do I truly like? That was like a huge thing for me in my 20s because identity formation was so difficult for us as adoptees because you're dealing with all that stuff on top of everything else with growing up. So I really hope that struggle isn't there for them. Of course, they'll have their own personal struggles. I do catch myself sometimes feeling a little resentful. You have a lot easier (laughs) uh, than I did. But, you know, I try not to let myself get too caught up in that. It is kind of hard for me, actually, to envision having grandchildren. Who knows what the future holds? I mean, it's it's impossible to predict. But I would love to be how many I have heard also a cute shortened version of Homini to be Hami, which I think is so cute. <laughs> I, I love that too. <laughs> so to our future Hamis or grandmothers, um, whether we embody that or just even in our community, the embodiment of our, our future grandchildren, I think is so, so neat to think about. So thank you for envisioning that with us today. We have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and it is, what are other labors of love that you are doing right now, aside from parenting and being on this podcast? And Amy, we can start with you. You know, I feel like I'm in my midlife transition, and I'm actively searching for a new job and, and, you know, shifting in my career. I hope to get deep in philanthropy. That's radical and transformative. Really excited because the narrative has shifted a lot around liberated communities and that community-centric solution building, especially in this moment. So I just have been trying to get my ear to the ground of um, seeing how in solidarity other communities are, are building wellness for healing and liberation. And again, going back to teachings of our Black and Indigenous and Latinx and queer and trans communities. So I I feel like I'm a student again. Uh, My husband, Daniel, has really stepped into the parenting piece with the kids. And that's given me a lot of, I think, time to be internal and selfish. The other piece that's really important for me is mentoring on both levels. And so I'm always seeking relationships with elders. I think that goes back to, you know, having probably been raised in the market and on the streets, you know, for my first six years, I just had this deep affinity for elders and that elder knowledge. Oh, and then also just passing it into the younger generation. And so I also work with the School of Social Work at UW, working with MSW and BASW students, and then also serve on a few boards. And I I find that deeply meaningful and exciting. Thanks, Amy. Sarah? Yeah, I have um, I have not been doing paid work um, since 
about six months into after having my oldest. So I'm doing the unpaid labor of parenting 24-7, although I realized during the pandemic, people who were working were doing that too, in addition to paid work. So right before everything started last year, in the early part of the year, I had been looking at reentering the paid workforce, but then everything changed and it just became almost impossible for that to happen. Um, and so, but now I'm entertaining that again. And it's really hard to, to do that after taking some time away from, uh, you know, your paid career. A lot of people, um, experience that, but it's, you know, it's intimidating. Uh, it's like a very different mindset. And I've been trying to think about, like, I wasn't just sitting around the last seven years. There's definitely things that <laughs> my parenting can inform how I would perform in a workplace. So, but it's, it's really recentering myself and, and rebranding myself a little bit. So I felt like I was branding myself as I am the mother of <laughs> these two boys and yeah, you know, it can become all consuming. So I'm looking outside that now and I've been, you know, I was very involved in adoptee spaces for a very long time, over 15 years at least. And it's been more limited after I had children, but, you know, I didn't abandon it entirely, but it wasn't to the extent that I was doing, but um been looking at things more, some articles and things that have been come out recently. And I really feel like the discourse on adoption, it just, I don't see in the public, in, you know, general public, I feel like it hasn't progressed much in the last 20 years. And I really hope I don't know how exactly, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to move that forward. There are a lot of challenges with it, but I would love to help move that forward more so that that general public awareness can progress because I still see people have their minds blown about the same things over and over, you know, that, oh, wow, adoption's complicated. It's not always a happy story feel-good story, that it's still, uh, adoptees themselves are still blown away by that. Because I feel like the majority of transracial, transnational adoptees, they don't spend very much time in community with other adoptees. Because, because like I was saying earlier, it's very difficult to do that. It's still like something you have to kind of actively seek out. But affects us so in um so many ways and it affects the greater culture too and I really really think people would benefit from having a greater understanding and sensitivity to the issues you know that we all grew up with and that your podcast is trying to address so I'm really glad you guys started this podcast I mean I think it'll do a lot of a lot of good well thank you um so much for those words and, and really informing and helping to bring awareness around the broader issues and the complexities of adoption. Um, so important and appreciate you speaking into that, into our conversation today. And, and really thank you both so much for feeding our souls today. Um, and as Nari mentioned, really powering us forward. It's such an honor to, and a privilege to really be in connection and for us to create this space 
together to explore the intergenerational healing, the radical transformation and evolution to y'all have been going through and the impact of soul food and the language of blood and truly our sense of belonging and continued journeys as adoptees and as parents. So thank you for joining today and engaging in this wonderful conversation. Um, it was such a pleasure to hold space with the both of you um, and be in community. So thank you for your offerings to our community. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Amy, for sharing. Such an honor. Great to see you all. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful for your listening and for joining our community effort to center and amplify the voices of BIPOC adoptee parents. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at Labor of Love Podcast. We look forward to next time.